Hear your names. Mr. Brown. Mr. White. Mr. Blonde. Mr. Blue. Mr. Orange. Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? It's a show where we talk about movies and specifically we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host Travis, aka TV's Travis. This is episode number 218 and our movie this week is 1992's Reservoir Dogs, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. And here to talk with me about it, closing out so wizard month of May, (laughs) is Aubrey. Aubrey, how you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Good. So originally you came to me with Pulp Fiction um, was yes. was what you'd finally narrowed it down to. And uh, I've done that one on the show already. So mm-hmm. I was like, well, I've done that. But here and um, I think Joey was like, she had a couple others that she hadn't seen. And one of those was Reservoir Dogs. And I said, well, let's do that. We'll stay on the Tarantino train. So give me any sort of history or background you have with Reservoir Dogs um, before watching it for this. Um, I would say the, the only background is that I used to confuse it for Lords of Dogtown. <laughs> uh-huh. I don't even know why. Um, and, but I used to confuse it for that all the time. So then I'd see it on Netflix. And I'd be like, oh, it's Lords of Dogtown, that stupid movie about skateboarding. <laughs> and then I'd be like, oh, well, no, 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 wait, no, it's not. And then I would turn it. It's a slightly different movie. Um... <laughs> yeah. So are you, uh, do you, have you seen many of Tarantino's films? Are you much of a Tarantino fan at all? No, I am not an action person. I am not, um, blood and gore. Like he's, he's just very much so out of my, my wheelhouse. Okay. All right. So, so having watched this now for the first time, um, what did you think overall? Like, how did it hit you as just a movie and, and watching it for the first time? I, I was, uh, I was very bored. (laughs) There's a lot of talking. It's a lot of talking. (laughs) So that's the interesting thing with Tarantino is he gets lumped in as like action uh, a lot of times. And really his movies are just people talking. That's the majority of his stuff. He's very dialogue heavy. Yeah. Yeah, and I am I am not a dialogue heavy lady. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also like that this gets uh, sometimes lumped into like best heist movies. Um, I've seen that show up on lists for that, and even Tarantino has said he loves seeing it on lists like that because it's a heist movie where you never see the heist. That that's yeah, they, it's like a lot of backstory for like what's going on in a single scene. There's like. It's mm-hmm. like the single scene movie, and then the rest of it is all the backstory leading up to that point. And it, it's, um, I saw the reviews are like really high for this. Yeah. So, uh, so this movie came out in 1992. I'll give a little background on the movie itself. Uh, written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. He actually put on the script, um, written by and to be directed by Quentin Tarantino when he <laughs> wrote it, um, way back when. And I've actually, I had read the script for this movie before I ever saw it. Um, I saw it in high school in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. But um, somebody that I knew that I went to school with 
had gotten a copy of the script. It had been floating around in early internet stuff. And so I had read a copy of the script prior to seeing the movie, which was a first for me. I'd never done that before. That was kind of interesting. Um, he wrote this and initially was going to shoot it himself on 16 millimeter film. And he was going to shoot it in black and white. And he had a budget. He was going to scrape together like $30,000 to make it. And um, his friend, one of the producers, Lawrence Bender, um, who is actually one of the police officers chasing Steve Buscemi in like the one action sequence in the movie. <laughs> he, he was taking an acting class and he took the script to his acting class and showed it to the acting coach who, whose wife was friends with Harvey Keitel. And so the story goes that she got the script to Harvey Keitel who loved it and wanted not only to be in the movie, but help, he would help produce it, which gave them uh, immediately bumped the budget up to uh, like a million and a half dollars to be able That's to film awesome. it. But also gave them name recognition because now they had Harvey Keitel, who even in 91, 90, he was already an established Hollywood person. And it gave them the ability to, it unlocked a lot of doors for more producers to join, as well as Harvey Keitel helped um, fund some casting uh, calls that they did in New York City so they could cast across the country as well and get a different pool of actors, which is where they ended up finding um, Steve Buscemi, Michael Madsen, and somebody else. Might have been Tim Roth. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. But basically, Harvey Keitel, without him, this movie is probably not remembered. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly not in the way that it is now. So that was a big thing for him at the time. And this is Tarantino's, basically his directorial debut. He had done a tiny little micro budget, like 70 minute film um, a few years before this. And then he went to Sundance in 91 and took a bunch of, they had like um, courses and like workshops that you could do. And so he took the script with him in 1991 to Sundance and uh, shot some stuff and was getting like tips and pointers from directors and, and people that were at Sundance, one of whom was Terry Gilliam, um, mm -hmm. who actually like loved the the ideas that he was going for and so the, the visual style that he did. And so he thanked him in the movie, which I thought was kind of cool. In the end credits, there's a special thanks to Terry Gilliam. Um, but he he managed to get the the budget for it and he made this movie and this was his first feature film and it blew up. Um, some critics didn't love it initially, but like the festival circuit did. Although he got Tarantino said he got to the point of counting the people that would walk out of the movie <laughs> because, and you can probably uh, back this up. It's not, it's not a movie for everyone. And especially yeah. early 1990s film festivals, this isn't a, what you would think of for a film festival movie in the first place. Mm -hmm. And so he was like, no, I get it. It's not like it's not the mountain that everyone's going to be able to climb. Um, famously, Wes Craven was one of the people that walked out of a screening of this movie. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Which, which I thought was was pretty impressive. Um, but the way Tarantino put it was, and it was mostly right around the a specific scene we'll talk about with a, a straight razor. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and he even said, like Tarantino said, he wanted that scene to be uncomfortable. So mm -hmm. he sort of got what he was going for with it. Um, but it just amazes me that for a young, unproven director to be able to get the cast of people that he did for this, um, who went on, all went on to have great careers, some of whom worked with him a lot and some of whom just, you know, did uh, 
did move on and do other stuff, like there's a lot of talent involved in making of this particular film and it shows, I think it shows in his filmmaking, even if the subject matter isn't for you, there's like things you can spot and notice that he does. It's very subtle that if you do ever watch the movie again, you may see, I don't, we'll, we'll get to whether or not you would watch this again. Um, but uh, was there, was there anybody in the cast particularly that either you like immediately recognized or stood out to you? Um, of course I knew, I, I knew Steve Buscemi. Um, he's, mm -hmm. he's been in a whole bunch of stuff that I've seen. Uh, Tim Roth. I also recognized, I, I recognized, um, the person that played Joe Cabot, but I couldn't figure out why I know that person. Um, he's mm -hmm. been in a whole lot of stuff. I, I looked up his IMDB. He's been in a whole bunch of stuff, but I couldn't quite yeah. place him. Um, Chris Penn too. I, I recognize Chris Penn. He also looks like somebody else. Um, and I can't figure out who exactly that is either, but he looks like somebody else that's in a bunch of stuff too. Uh, I want to say like, I'm, and somebody with Steve Buscemi that I feel like he's been in something okay. with him. Cause um, I mean, Chris Penn does look a little like his brother, Sean Penn. Yeah, um, he he does, but he also has a voice like uh, somebody else too. But I couldn't place. He he sounds just like somebody, and I, I really can't. It's like that nasally yeah. kind of mm -hmm. voice that he's got going, kind of like a, a Michael. My goodness, I'm I'm blanking on his name too. But he <laughs> he's also in a whole bunch of like New York City stuff and uh he was in oh goodness and it had been in a trying to think of some yeah i'm trying to think of some michaels uh the only name he's got red hair right red or... curly hair um oh rapaport yes 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 he kind of mm -hmm. reminds me of him a little bit too i could see i, I can see a little bit of that sure especially they've yeah. got the same kind of curly hair they're both tall uh chris penn is taller than you would think and and you don't really think about it until you see him standing next to like harvey keitel and yeah, like, oh, yeah and they, they, they kind of have like that new york city accent like mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> yep. oh Rappaport definitely does yeah um phil root in the chat mentions lawrence tierney by the way is who played joe cabot uh he was elaine's dad in seinfeld so you might remember okay. i mean he's been Maybe. acting forever um there was a great there's a great line in this where he uses the line dead is dillinger um mm -hmm referencing john dillinger he played john dillinger in a movie back in like the 40s or 50s or something like that he apparently yeah, there's like was a lot of those little easter difficult. eggs yeah he apparently was really difficult to work with too um i guess I uh he got fired like tarantino fired him three days in and then rehired him uh because he couldn't <laughs> he he couldn't remember his lines and he was just kind of this big brutish guy and i guess he pushed tarantino at some point but then, uh, so he fired him, but then he hired him back. But in the meantime, he had gotten drunk. The story goes, now, I'm sure some of this is true, but the story goes that he got drunk, shot some holes in his apartment wall, and got arrested and, and was in jail over the weekend and got bailed out to go back to the movie set on Monday by his agent. That's awesome. So, you know, he was a little tough to work with. Um, the character of Mr. Blue, who's basically just in that first scene sitting around the the diner table 
um, is played by Edward Bunker, who was a real criminal. He was, um, oh, he had been really a criminal cool. and a novelist. And, uh, he has a story that apparently he got in a fist fight with Lawrence Tierney back in the fifties, but Tierney doesn't remember it at all. Um, but Bunker told that story. And I guess they had him like Eddie, uh, Eddie Bunker, as he was credited in this or Edward Bunker, he was a criminal. He had written a novel, at least one novel. Um, but he would often be, uh, like a technical advisor on films with criminals like heat. Um, Michael Mann's Mm -hmm. heat. He was a technical advisor on, and he acted in a movie based on his novel. And he said, um, and I love this quote is like, yeah, some of this movie is kind of not realistic. Like you wouldn't do a job with a bunch of people you don't know. And you wouldn't all dress the same and then go out to breakfast the morning of the job. <laughs> because then if, uh, then they can, people can just be like, Oh yeah, we saw a group of guys all dressed like that at the diner. Like, I get that, but at the same time, it's just kind of a cool, like that opening scene is so iconic for this movie. And uh, it really sets the tone. That opening scene sets the tone for all of the characters. And that's kind of the stuff that, that Tarantino is so good at doing. Um, Mm -hmm. And he has an acquired taste. If you don't like, like, you either like Tarantino films or you don't like Tarantino films. He's unapologetic in terms of the dialogue that he writes uh, the types of characters that he writes and then the visuals that he puts on screen, whether it be uh, violence or whatever, he's, he's unapologetic and all of that. It's just what he does. Um, but he's also such a good, like you can tell how much of a student of filmmaking he, he is and was because of things like this is his directorial debut and he's doing all sorts of fun little things that um, that opening scene in the diner, it establishes who everyone is. Mm -hmm. and who they are in the group you know mr white is very protective especially of uh of like other people he's the Mm -hmm. one that pushes back against the tipping and is like you know you don't know what you're talking about this is very important for the the women that work as waitresses and all of this like that's his stance immediately mr pink is like i don't care about anybody i do my own thing um they even establish basically that uh they establish in the beginning of the movie that mr orange is the rat Mm mm-hmm because he immediately rats out Mr. Pink as soon as Joe comes back saying, who didn't put in a dollar? He's like, it's Mr. Pink. And he points right at him. Like, that's a good point. And, yeah, and that's it's, a good it's, point. It's, it's yeah. Like you don't think about that, but if you watch it a second time, you'll catch that. You'll catch uh, all sorts of little things. Like Joe uh, has a trust of Mr. Blonde because he's the one. Um, and they, they have a bond that is different from everyone else at the table, but you don't really think about it until, you've watched through the movie and you see what he's done and all of this. So it's, it's kind of neat that way. I like that. Or there's a, there's little visual things too. There's the scene. So Tarantino also has this thing of doing chronology out of order. He doesn't, he doesn't like to make a movie that's just time progressing a to B to C. He likes to mix things up. You kind of notice that in this where Mm -hmm. we get scenes and then it's like, we flash back to background character background. Um, and there's a scene early on where, uh, Steve Buscemi and Harvey Keitel go off into another room to talk and get away from the Tim Roth character and they're splashing water on their face, washing their hands off all of that. There's a really cool thing. If you, if again, if you go back and watch this, you'll see on the wall behind them is a bunch of bottles of cleaning supplies and there is mm-hmm. pink and white stuff. That's all on one side of the uh, counter. And then some orange cleaning supplies that are separate over on the other side of the counter. 
Oh, that's really cool. <laughs> and yeah, it's like I I saw this movie probably like five or six times before I ever noticed that, and I was like, oh, look at that! They're separating stuff out, you know. And there's there's little things yeah. like that that you catch that it's just kind of fun, like Easter eggy filmmaky things that that I'm always fascinated by. Like you put these things in to, to subconsciously tell people stuff without having to just come right out and say, it. it's that show don't tell idea of film. Um, yeah. He's very detailed in, in aspects that people don't really think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, and, and he's very particular in the types of shots that he composes. Mm-hmm. And I like some some people may call it, especially in this film, amateurish, but I kind of like some of the shots he does because there's one in particular when um, when Mr. Pink and Mr. White are fighting and there's that iconic shot of him standing over with the gun pointed at him and he's on the ground with his gun pointed up and the camera slowly backs away and you don't think about it at first, but then you suddenly start to realize that we're getting Mr. Blonde's perspective. We're seeing this play out from him standing over on the other side of the room. Mm-hmm. As the camera slowly backs up, and then we see Mr. Blonde standing there. It's a cool reveal. Yeah, because it's just a cool looking shot, and then it's like, oh, we just we're just gonna back up from this, okay? And then they're really small in the frame. There's a lot of very like weird shots where everybody's small in the back part of the frame, mm-hmm. which it doesn't. It makes you feel like you're just observing stuff happening, as opposed to being in on the action and part of it. You're kind of a fly on the wall watching these guys all unravel in this warehouse because you're standing looking down a hallway seeing them and you might only see one of them but they're having a conversation the whole time too which i thought was kind of cool i like that yeah and Um, it is a very different perspective mm -hmm. it's very um independent film i think yes is what i would call this because it's also a lot of long takes and (laughs) Um, you know, you might sit on a, on a, a, a non-moving camera for a minute or two as dialogue goes on and you're not doing coverage. You're not getting in close-ups on everybody as everybody is speaking and seeing their faces. Um, so you're, you're left, you really have to listen to the dialogue in order to absorb what's going on in the film. Um, which I think is a, is a cool stylistic choice too depending on and and obviously your mileage may vary on if that works for you or not but i think what it does is it pulls you in to listen to the words that are being spoken um and because tarantino is so into his dialogue um he wants that he wants to rope you in there and hold you in that moment instead of giving you a cut where you got to look at something else and see somebody else's face you're forced to kind of listen to them talk and you're you you can't you can't be distracted by anything else in the frame, I think is the way I would put it. Yeah, he he is very uh, minimalist in a lot of his sets, it seems. Um, in, like it, it, it draws your attention towards the actual thing that's going on rather than having to look around and see what's going on in the other room. Or it, like even um, with some of his other movies, I want to say like, he, he directed Django, right? I'm pretty sure he yes. did. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Django even was, Django Unchained, yeah. Yeah, even that was very minimalist in certain aspects. Like everything was it it's not a very busy set. It's not a very busy scene. No, most of the time it's not. Because again, like he's not an action director. He's not he's 
I wouldn't call him the opposite of Michael Bay, but he's closer to a Kevin Smith than a Michael Bay mm-hmm. in terms of like Kevin Smith makes movies. And the, the whole joke for him for a long time was he never moves the camera. Yeah. Right? He just sets a camera and locked off and he has people talking. And that's a lot of what Tarantino does. Um, he has little bits of action mixed in here and there, but for the most part, his movies are very dialogue driven and he's kind of, that's what interests him. Um, but he, uh, he definitely just brings in all sorts of influences from things. He loves Hong Kong cinema. So he made, uh, kill bill, which had mm-hmm. outstanding action sequences. Um, and then, you know, he, he'll pull from, uh, this movie famously was, um, people were saying, well, he plagiarized a, a film called, uh, Oh shoot. What was the name of it now? Um, Mark even mentioned it when I posted on Twitter about doing this. He's like, yeah, I like this movie better when it was, uh, and he, he gave the name of it, but it was a Hong Kong film from a few years earlier. Mm-hmm. And, um, Tarantino said in an interview, well, yeah, I stole from that movie. I steal from every movie I've ever <laughs> seen. Like, of course. And he's never been shy about that. But what he did was he took kind of a, the last like t- 10, 20 minutes of that movie the the plots are very is very similar to the plot of Reservoir Dogs, where mm-hmm. it's a band of criminals and a lot of the story beats are the same. But he took that small section of that movie, expanded it out to an hour and forty minutes, and then put in his own spin and his own you know his own dialogue and his own style to it. Um, and that I think is true of filmmakers. They take what they've seen before or what's influenced them and they work it into their films. And sometimes they're very obvious in it. And sometimes it's very subtle. Um, you know, I feel I mean, like that's Lucas, true for all creatives too. I mean, it painters, they see something beautiful. Mm-hmm. They're, they're going to take that and, and, and repaint it. And musicians, they hear a key that they like in a different song. They're going to base another song off of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's the idea of artists, you know, stealing or copying from other artists. Well, you can do that as long as you make it something your own at the same mm-hmm. time. You're you're because it's impossible to not be influenced by what you see. Um, City on fire, by the way, is the movie that I was referencing. It's a uh, 1987, I think is when that one came out. Um, and so there's a lot of very similar story elements in the end of that movie um, to reservoir dogs, but reservoir dogs is one of those that's like, it's been copied to death since mm-hmm. then. Uh, since 1992 this was a huge movie from an independent film standpoint very similar to like clerks a couple of years later which really invigorated independent film and and showed that you know you can make something on a low budget that has very little kind of action going on or and it's it's all dialogue but it can be very engaging and very funny um tarantino showed you can do basically an action movie without any action um and I'm always fascinated by stuff like that. We get the few minutes before the heist. We get everything after the heist. The heist itself is all in our head. Yeah. Yeah. And we we get a very good image of how it went down because we hear them complaining. But <laughs> yeah. And even like the most of the violence in the movie, you don't physically see it happen. Like the so the probably the most famous scene from this movie is the torture scene with the cop. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a, we, first we get the famous, it's a very famous, uh, Tarantino shot style, which is looking up from the open trunk of a car. 
Mm -hmm. um, if you ever watch his movies, that happens all the time. Uh, I think <laughs> that it's like if you're watching a Tarantino movie and there's a car in it, somebody's going to be in that trunk or looking into the trunk and you're going to see somebody's feet. That's mm -hmm. just Tarantino. It's what he does. But we get that. They bring the, the cop in played by Kirk Balls. Um, and then there's a there's a very famous scene where he gets tortured by Mr. Blonde, who is basically mm -hmm. a sadist. Um, and that scene is rough, but when you watch it, the actual act of violence, the camera moves away from it. And so what we see, again, is everything leading up to that moment. Then we pull the camera off and we hear it, and then we get the aftermath of it. And I think that actually makes that scene more difficult. Mm-hmm to watch than if we had seen what they'd initially shot, which was they had a special effect showing him cutting the ear off. Like they mm -hmm. made a prosthetic that fit over it and everything. Um, I think not having that there makes it more difficult because now your brain is filling in those blanks and you're forced to kind of, you're almost forced to picture it in your head. Yeah. And that can that be moment. worse. <laughs> yeah. Much worse. It's the, it's the whole idea of don't show your monster. Or show mm -hmm. your monster sparingly because what's what's in your audience's head is often scarier than the creature design you can come up with. Um, and so, like by by pulling the camera away, I think forces you to be inside that moment with what's going on to that police officer, especially still having the audio of him along with the song, which is so discordant to what's going on. <laughs> There's so much that mixes into that scene. Were you familiar I I was, with that I, song? I I was, yeah. I I knew that song and uh, also uh, hooked on a feeling. Okay, um, yeah. but yeah, like this movie is a big reason why that song regained popularity, and uh, it's so out of place with the with the actions on screen that are going on. And it's like it's perfect for what they were going for in that scene, and mm -hmm. it works. But it works because it's this happy, upbeat, peppy song in sort of a Bob Dylan style. And he's cutting off a guy's ear and slashing him with a, with a razor. It's like, <laughs> yeesh. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, and Tarantino's really good at doing that. He's good at picking songs mm -hmm. for movies. There's like certain directors have that ability. Um, and they kind of know the music that they want to do or they work really well with their music supervisor. James Gunn is one of mm -hmm. those. Right, he's always Taika good Waititi at, definitely was. Taika Waititi can do yeah. that. Um, I think Edgar Wright does a great job with music in his movies too. Not just Baby Driver, but like music in general that he picks. Mm -hmm. Um, and Tarantino is known for that too. There's no orchestrated score for this movie at all. Um, yeah, yeah, I noticed that. It's it's. I feel like there's only those two songs actually is is um, stuck in the middle and uh, hooked on a feeling. And then I don't remember there being any other songs. There was the radio playing, but it never actually played any yep. songs. The radio plays a couple of times. You mostly get the um, the song at the opening credits, Little Green Bag, mm -hmm. um, which I immediately because of when I saw this and that was the first time I'd heard that song or maybe just didn't ever write. Like I associate it with that scene. So they did a good job there. Um, mm -hmm. And then lime in the coconut for the end credits. Mm -hmm. And most of you're right. Most of the um, scenes in the movie don't really have music to them. And any music that is playing 
is just kind of radio in the background, which again is kind of a cool way to do it because it's very it's music that exists inside the scene that we're watching too, instead of being music laying over top of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can never remember diegetic is music that exists in the world that you're watching. Non-diegetic is the music like a like a score fitting over top of mm-hmm. it. I believe is how it goes. But I love that use of diegetic music where, again, that same scene, he's cut the guy's ear off, you know, and Steeler's wheel is playing, and then he gets up and he walks out, and we get that nice long take where he walks out to the car, and as he leaves, the music gets quieter and quieter and goes away. And now, mm-hmm. once again, we're we're stuck in this moment with Mr. Blonde, and you don't really know what's coming until he grabs the gas can. And at that point, you're like, oh, oh, I know what the end of this is going to be, and it's not good. And then because it's a continued single shot, you're just stuck there. And you're like, I, I don't like this. I don't want to see him set someone on fire. And <laughs> so you know what's coming. And then the music comes back in as he goes back inside. And yeah, I, now I you're back like in this that. really weird yeah. place. Yeah. Uh, and and I like how that whole scene's going on. And then it doesn't end the way that you expected it to. You've, you've spent yeah. whatever it is, a minute, minute and a half, knowing, like, seeing all the signposts and they're all pointing at the same spot. Like, this guy is going to set this other dude on fire mm-hmm. after cutting his Like, this is terrible. And then you get, you know, the gut punch, like the rug pulled out from under your feet of, nope, that's not what we're doing at all. What we're doing is arguably worse. <laughs> yeah, you're preparing yourself like, for worse, it. Like, worse, but it. also better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that to me is good storytelling and good filmmaking. Um, yeah. Because it, it creates an emotional reaction in you. So I, uh, I always, I always like that. Even knowing that it's coming after seeing the movie so many times, um, just, just the way it's executed is just, uh, is lovely. It's like having, to me, it's sort of like eating a meal that you've had before and you know what it's going to taste like, but it's still just, is really good and it yeah. hits those right moments. <laughs> That's kind of how I feel like when I see stuff like that in a movie, it's that remembrance of like, Oh yeah, yep. This is coming up and Oh, so good. Still good. Every time. <laughs> um, so you were, you, you mentioned at the top that you were kind of bored um, during the movie. What yeah. do you think? Do you think that it's, could it be that it's a movie that is 30 something years old now? 31 years old, I guess it would be. Probably. I I feel like it could have, it probably would have held up a lot better had I watched it when it first came out and uh, even watched it maybe 10 years after it came out, it probably would have held up a little bit more for me. I think at this point it's just, it's very, very dialogue heavy. And the, I don't want to say that the visual style of it is out outdated, but it there's a lot going on in it that today's society it probably it doesn't hold up to the same recognition or the same um, it, it doesn't hold up the same as it as it would have when it first came out or even 10 years after. I think society these days has, has definitely evolved. There's a lot of things in this mm-hmm. movie that push 
the limits, you know, very Tarantino. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, um, I'm going to push these, these society, the societal limits and see what I can get away with and what people are going to be offended about. I feel mm -hmm. like he always has to offend somebody in any movie he's ever released. He just has to find a way sure. to offend somebody. <laughs> and I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think if this movie was rated these days, it would not be as high as it, as it is. I can see kind of where you're going with that. And I think, I think too, like last week, what I watched with, uh, with Mark was a directorial debut. It was a feature film debut for Ari Aster with Hereditary. And comparing, obviously, Hereditary and Reservoir Dogs are not the same type of movie. Um, mm -hmm. One is a weird psychological horror <laughs> thing that... I, I can't even describe and and the other one is is much more of a dialogue driven crime movie but they're both directorial debuts they're mm -hmm. both young directors that are making their mark and what I what I notice watching especially watching them back to back like this is how far we've come in terms of what a filmmaker is capable to do early in their career. I mean, Tarantino, it's 1992, 91, I think when he was shooting this, um, you know, at that point, the cost of making a film is very different from what it is today. Yes. Budgets are, are higher today, but what you could get access to was also less. He had to shoot on film, couldn't shoot digitally at all. Mm -hmm. That didn't exist. So he's got to buy a can. He's got to rent a camera to do that. He's got to buy the, the film. He's got to have that film process. The editing is very different. And on top of that, like what he can do effects wise all has to be practical. All of the blood, all of the squibs, all of that has to exist in the real world practically for him to shoot it. Whereas Ari Aster has the advantages of today's filmmaking and digital filmmaking is that he's got so much more open to be able to do to get your vision on screen. And so he can take a lot more um, he can go a lot different places and a lot riskier with some of his stuff, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, and, uh, it does make for a, a very cool movie, but I think also it changes the sensibilities of like audiences as you're watching it, because now we're expecting better out of, out of films and independent film today is very different from independent film of the early nineties. So I can totally see where yeah, you're coming from. Yeah, I think there's that. a very independent film feel to this too and, and nowadays you know you see movies that are released at Sundance they're not I feel like back then you had to go out of your way to watch an independent film that was released at Sundance <laughs> and these days like Sundance films are released mm -hmm. oh, in but definitely. too it's there's a much uh there's a much bigger yeah. following with those types of movies these days Whereas it, it was probably a lot harder for him to scrape together this movie and, and some pieces of that suffered, whereas today it would have been done a little bit different. Oh, sure. I mean, for one, today you've got streaming services, so you can put your movie onto, like, a streaming service is going to buy a movie. Look at something like uh, Shudder, as an mm -hmm. example is a streaming service dedicated to horror films. So these smaller independent horror films have a better chance of getting picked up and put on a service like shutter where they're going to be exposed to a larger audience than they would have 10, 15, 20 years ago or more uh, where they had to 
I mean, in the eighties, you had to basically rely on home video and hope that that would work. It sort of happened with this movie because it, it did end up getting picked up by a distributor after Sundance and a couple of festivals, Miramax picked it up. Um, and they ended up putting it out in theaters, but it was only in like 20 something theaters nationwide, something like that. It's a very limited release. So the movie didn't do great in the box office either. It was only, I think it only made like $3 million. Um, granted it was only in a few screens, so it's actually pretty impressive, but then it gains a cult following via home video. And, uh, also I think too, when Tarantino's next movie, which was Pulp Fiction, then gets all sorts of recognition and all sorts of award recognition and things like that. Retroactively. Now people are going to go back and look at the movie he made before it in reservoir dogs. That's kind of how I found out about it was sort of the same thing. So that's a different, that's a totally different thing than what you get now, which is like just, just the, the nature of watching films. There's so much available now. And in some ways it does, mean that it's harder to kind of surface yourself because there's just a broader pool of entertainment to watch. But at the same time, if you are into certain genres or certain styles of movies, there are services, there are streaming services that can cater to that and you can find these more obscure things. So it's kind of a 50 50, right? There's more available, but there's easier ways to find what's available. Yeah. He might've, he might've had a, a better following yeah yeah um but he did go on i mean he's obviously gone on to have quite a career for himself um which is pretty pretty fun in a lot of ways like it's crazy to think that this guy who worked in a video store um when he was in his teens and early 20s managed to write a script make a movie and now you know he hasn't had to work for a long time because his movies make a ton of money and he is well known in Hollywood, um, like him or not. And he is able to do what he wants to do. And I think part of that too, is the balls on this guy <laughs> when he was young, making movies was pretty impressive. I feel like he still has a, cause a you mentioned how terrible. like, <laughs> because it, he comes out with movies like Jenkins. he really <laughs> does. He so I I saw an interview with him. He was talking about um, his way of writing scripts and how, like, he basically, especially early on, would just go into pro- to meetings with producers and things and say, "All right, here's the movie. Here's the script. This is what I want to make." And they would maybe say something, you know, "Oh, maybe we should change this," or "Can you do something with the third act?" He'd be like, "No, that's the movie I want to make. If if that doesn't work for you, I'll just I'll go somewhere else and somebody else will produce it." And he would write a script and then that's the movie he wanted to make. And I buy that in a way because again, I read the script for Reservoir Dogs, but there was also in 91 at that Sundance, he shot some of the scenes with uh, actually with Steve Buscemi. Um, And so they're early versions of the scenes we see in this movie. And the dialogue is word for word, what we saw in the movie. So he wasn't changing a lot. Um, as it would go. And that's, that's a very ballsy way to make a movie because Hollywood is not, uh, not kind to people. Uh, a lot of times, especially those that don't want to kowtow to the, to the producers, um, and kind of do what they want. Like he, I guess, and like, it's, it's Harvey <laughs> Weinstein. So good on Tarantino for fighting him. Over it. 
but Weinstein wanted to take the torture scene out of Reservoir Dogs. He didn't think that it should be in there. And Tarantino basically was like, no, I'm leaving it in and fought with him over and over until he finally won the argument okay. somehow, which is amazing because you hear stories of people trying to, to argue with Harvey Weinstein in that. Never yeah. I've well, been reading the, and yet somehow Quentin Tarantino. I, I've been reading the, uh, the memoir she said about Harvey Weinstein. <laughs> I, mm. and it, it talks about how, how hard it is to argue with him. I mean, he wasn't called the most powerful man in Hollywood yeah. for nothing. Um, so that's a whole, whole other path we don't need to go down tonight <laughs> talking to Harvey Weinstein because yikes. But, uh, but Tarantino was Tarantino was one that could butt heads with him and come out on top. So that tells you something. Um, let's see what was there was some. I found some trivia and I have to. Oh, I know what it was. There was a trivia bit that. Uh, during filming i love this because i love to find especially imdb mm -hmm. because it's editable by anybody that wants to sign <laughs> up i love to find trivia in here that i immediately am like i don't buy that for a second um and this one was one of those it said during filming a paramedic was kept on set to make sure that mr orange's amount of blood loss was kept consistent and realistic to that of a gunshot victim uh, yeah. to which i say yeah, sure. that doesn't. They they didn't have the, no, they didn't have the money for costumes <laughs> in this movie, like the the all the the black suits that they all wore. Those were donated to the movie by the designer of the suits because the person liked crime uh, heist movies, and the rest of the costuming in the movie was basically they just told the actors bring stuff from your home, mm -hmm. and so that's why Chris Penn is wearing that track jacket. <laughs> Because that was his. Yeah. And if you if you look, Steve Buscemi is not wearing suit pants. He's wearing black jeans because he they didn't have a pair of suit pants for him. I'll have to, I'll have to rewatch. So yeah. <laughs> if they if they didn't have the budgeting Yeah. They didn't have the budgeting for costumes. There is no way they had a paramedic on set to make sure the amount of blood was the same. Yeah, that seems I like a cost that. that they um, would I do sorry, they that seems like a cost that they would just like yeah. not. No, no, they were they're not thinking about that. Um I do buy though that Tim Roth apparently would get glued to the floor <laughs> because they've got that sticky, yeah. you know, basically probably like caro syrup type blood. And he's laying in that under the hot, you know, hot lights while they're filming. And if he he would lay there for periods of time, and they'd have to like peel him off. I the could floor see that, yeah. At the end of at the end of shooting, which does kind of crack me up. Uh, and Tarantino was going to have a dummy in there, and, and Tim Roth was like, "No, nah, I'll, I'll just it's fine. <laughs> I'll okay. just lay there, you know." Um, I mean, pff, heck, he got paid to lay in the lay in a pool, you know, a puddle yeah. for a little while. That's not bad. So it's a good yeah, job exactly. if you can get it. <laughs> um. Uh, but this is the other thing I like about Tarantino's movies is like they exist in Tarantino's own world. That's basically our world, but shifted just slightly. Like they reference things that are real, like the, the scene where they're the four of them are in the car and they're talking about the TV mm -hmm. show. None of them can remember the actress's name and, and all that it's a real TV show they're talking about, um, that existed that ran in the seventies that was made into a movie with Pam Greer. Like all of that's real, but then you're also in the same world where like, 
they have you know fake brands for stuff or um, just things that happen that would never happen in the real world. You would never have an undercover cop involved in a robbery. Like it would never get to that point. Mm-hmm. You know, they would the the cops would probably step in at some point before the robbery could really yeah. happen, so that he's not put in a situation like he was in this where he kills someone. Um. So it's just like those are the types of things that like Tarantino just he writes in this world that's ours, but sort of not at the same time. And I kind of enjoy that because it it gives you this ability to sort of disconnect and just enjoy the weirdness that he puts in his in his stuff and some of the goofy things like uh, um, just just, you know, a uh, guy leaves a, a, a crime scene, but takes the time to go through a drive through <laughs> and get a pack of fries and yeah. uh, in a drink because why not um or uh one of his and i i have i always wanted to put this in a movie because i i heard tarantino talk about it in an interview somewhere where like a guy's running from the police or running from gangsters or something and he he breaks the window out of a car gets into the car looks down and it's a, it's yeah. a manual and he can't drive a manual like that to me is a is a wonderful gag that i want to see in a movie sometime because i just think that's hilarious because that would ha- that could, could happen yeah um and it's just that that kind of stuff that uh that tarantino can do that i think is great um so i know that you were a little bored watching it but would <laughs> would you consider watching this movie a second time or was it just did it just not connect with you at all um i might watch it a second time i don't know about a third time but it, a second time i might just to <laughs> just to look at all the the little details that i make that I missed like you you brought up Steve Buscemi wearing jeans I mean I would I would find that stuff really interesting so was is this your first Tarantino film that you've seen no I I saw I saw Django um I feel like I've seen more things that he's done too it's just that I'm not normally he can be a little too gruesome for me, so I I tend to not not kind of <laughs> okay. I will say if if this isn't your jam, um, it's hard to. I both want to suggest that you watch mm-hmm. Pulp Fiction, but also realize it's it's in that same era. It's more polished than this, I will say that. And what Pulp Fiction does have going for it is it is the same kind of disjointed time, but it's multiple stories going on. So you're not just following one small set of people. You're following a couple of people here, and then you'll get the story over here of of some other people, and there might be a small crossover. You might see a character that was in one story show up in the background in, in a different story and vice versa. It is still that same very dialogue heavy stuff. Um, he didn't really start incorporating a lot of action until he got to kill bill. Um, so bear that in mind. If you do watch something like Pulp Fiction or Jackie Brown, that they are, I think Pulp Fiction being the better choice there, but it's very dialogue heavy. It's a lot of talking. Um, cause that's just Tarantino talks a lot. And so he's, he's going to write a lot of talking into his movies. Um, if you like Hong Kong films or you like, uh, uh, kung fu films um kill bill is a lot of fun it's also very yeah violent. it has really so. good reviews and everything so i was um i i keep meaning to watch that one too 
Yeah. It's it, Tarantino is very much a love or hate type of thing. You're either going to like his movies and dive into them, or it's sort of like um, another director that I, I've been getting into more, and I wasn't when I was younger, is David Lynch. I think David Lynch is a is the type of director where you either really get into what he's doing or it's too weird and you just can't wrap your brain around it. And Tarantino sort of, you either really get into it or you're just like, I don't like this. I don't like the people. I don't like the dialogue or they're unlikable characters. That kind of stuff can happen too. Um, but uh, I'm glad that you did watch this because I do think as as a film, I think it's worth every once in a while stepping out of your comfort zone and watching something you normally would. Yeah, yeah, I think I do think it's very um, different from what I've nor what I would normally watch. So I I do think it was good to you know, get, check it off my list. <laughs> I think also uh, a thing like for me it's easy to identify with this movie. There's no, there's not a, a female line. There's not a, a line spoken by a woman in the movie. And there's not, there's only like two characters that appear on screen that aren't guys. And that is the woman that he pulls out of the car that shoots Mr. Orange and the woman that Mr. Pink pulls out of the car and takes, steals her car. Okay. There's no other women in the, in the movie. They're mentioned a couple of times and they mention because we don't see the heist, we don't see any of those characters, but I think that that, might also kind of play into because there's no you know without those kinds of characters like it's easy for me to identify with the movie because everybody in the movie is very similar to to me in terms of like what they look like and kind of how they sound um even if i'm not a uh career criminal which i'm not <laughs> just to, to point out fbi if you're watching uh i have never wa robbed a, a bank or a diamond exchange but um i think that that also kind of plays into it because most I will say that most people I know that are Tarantino fans tend to be guys. He writes very uh, male centric stuff. That's he writes what he knows. That's who he is. Um, <laughs> Mr. Plaid. Yes. That would be my, my code name is Mr. Plaid. Um, so I wonder, I, I do wonder if that played into it at all. Like if they had more interactions with uh, women in the movie, preferably positive ones, if that would have made a difference in kind of your watching of it or not. I'm, I'm always curious. It about might. Like I, I maybe because it started off with the whole conversation of Madonna's like a virgin. It was, it was kind of a very in like in-depth about what she meant. By yeah. I mean, that, that kind of is like, that sets the tone for the movie right there that these are misogynistic men. <laughs> so, I mean, maybe. That's a very good point. Yeah, they're, they're very um, opinionated misogynists uh, that are also racist. So, I mean, those are all the type of people that I'm not, you know, crazy about. So, I I wouldn't be surprised if, if maybe there was somebody that was a little bit more likable in it. If it would have been so yeah it, it is a lot of like all the characters are these hyper masculine um toxically masculine guys and there's this hierarchy that gets set up and they're all intimidating in different ways which i do find fascinating um but they're not i mean likable is uh you're you're right they're not likable at all like the closest you get to likable 
maybe is Harvey Keitel, but then he immediately flips to talking about, you know, smashing somebody in the nose or cutting off their finger if they don't do what you tell them to do. So it's like, well, he's not exactly a good guy. Um, but he's got this like intensity to him. And then you juxtapose that with Mr. Blonde, who is from a intimidating standpoint, like the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of energy. But for some reason, that's as intimidating, if not more so. It's really weird. And like how just they all interact because none of them want to back down. They all have to be the alpha. Um, and that just doesn't work. So that's how you end up with a, uh, a standoff of everybody pointing guns at each other because nobody wants to be wrong. So there's some of that in there. Yeah, too. They're, they're um, very I think, uh, dominant. I, I, I can men. agree with you. That, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, they are. And, uh, and I do agree with you if there were somebody more likable. And I think that is something that happens in some of his other movies. There are, there are characters that get more likable. They're still, I would never call many of the characters in any of his movies completely likable because they all have their dark sides. That's sort of just a Tarantino thing. Like everybody does. Um, but they definitely on the whole become more likable. And some of them are much more charismatic too. Um, Sam Jackson as Jules Winfield, for instance, um, you know, he's a hitman, but he's also very likable at the same time because it's Samuel L. Jackson. How can he not be? Um, so, you know, it happens. Um, but I, I'm, I'm just, I'm glad that you got to see this and, uh, can kind of check it off your list. And now you can tell people, yes, I've seen Tarantino. I, I know, um, which is good. Um, but it's been a fun conversation, uh, about this too, because I like getting your perspective on it. I like hearing that, you know a movie that for me still is kind of a touchstone moment as well as something that I can go back to a lot. And uh, I don't think about it as being boring, but I can completely get where it's just long scenes of people talking and about a thing that we never see. <laughs> it really is. It's, it's a lot of dialogue about action that you don't get to watch. And that, you know, th that can either be your cup of tea or you can just be like, I don't care. I didn't see any of this. Just move on to the next thing, please. So, yeah, I can totally see that. Um, I did capture a couple of audio clips, though, that I thought were kind of funny. I'd like to play for you. Um, yeah, if you don't mind. I'm not sure what happened with um, my webcam. I think it died. I... <laughs> oh, that's okay. Um, as long as you can hear me and we can yeah, hear you, that's, you that's the important that. part. Um, so that... Yeah, the opening diner scene um, is very iconic for this movie because, again, it sets up and it tells you about all the characters right away. And it just has some great Tarantino dialogue of like quippy one-liners and comebacks. And I liked where, um, you know, Mr. White takes the, the book from Joe. And so you get this idea that they have a relationship that is at least friendly enough that he can pull that off without just getting punched right away. Um, but then Mr. Blonde's like, you want me to shoot this guy? And I love the response to it, which is, shit, <laughs> you shoot me in a dream. You better wake up and apologize. Like there again, is that sort of that mat, that hyper masculinity of like, if you shot me in a dream, you better wake up and apologize to me. Um, that one kind of always makes me laugh. Um, 
I did get so the radio, which is kind of its own character in the movie, um, as the K Billy's yeah, super yeah. sounds of the seventies. It was absolutely perfect to have Stephen Wright be the radio voice because he is the opposite of every radio DJ you have ever heard in your life. Um, are you familiar with Stephen Wright? It sounds familiar. Um, so he's mm-hmm. a comedian. And he's a he's a stand-up comedian, and his shtick is that voice he was using for the for the radio. That's how he does his stand-up comedy. He does all of it with that deadpan, monotone, very slow delivery. Um, and so to have him being a radio DJ just cracked me up. But I loved the way he said when he was talking about the monster truck rally. Um, because again, it's that like whole slow thing of on Sunday there'll be a monster truck rally. And <laughs> And then the name of the truck he gave cracked me up. This is the way he says. The behemoth. The behemoth. <laughs> I was laughing about that, too. It doesn't even sound like behemoth. <laughs> it's so good. Um, let's see. Oh, uh, in talking about Mr. White and Mr. Blonde and how they're kind of opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of sort of how animated they are, because um, one yells a lot and the other one's very quiet all the time. I did like, and this is a very Tarantino thing again, just like how they, they reference Pam Greer and they reference that show. Um, Mr. White has this big blow up and he's yelling at Mr. Blonde and he's pointing a gun at him. He's saying all this stuff. And his response to it is. I bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan, aren't you? I'll bet you're a big Lee Marvin fan. Um, you familiar with Lee Marvin? No. So he. An actor, um, and definitely uh, prone to fits of yelling like that. Uh, it is very Lee Marvin style uh, moment. So that that one is again Tarantino kind of showing off. Like, yeah, I watch a lot of movies. Uh, I'm going to work it in just because. So, um, a couple more that I had. One was um, I say this a lot because of this movie. Anytime I'm with a group of people and we're getting ready to go do something, I always like to say. All right, ramblers, let's get rambling. Because for me, that's just funny. I don't know. It's silly. Um, but I definitely took it from this movie. As well as anytime there's a bunch of cars parked in an area, I always like to say... First, got to get rid of those cars outside. It looks like Sam's hot car lot out there. Sam's hot car lot. Something with that uh, that rhyming that gets me. Like, obviously, it's reference to, you know, a used car lot, but... <laughs> That's one of those that I say a lot and I can tell when people have seen this movie or they haven't based on how they react to me saying that. So, but I'm a huge dork and I speak fluent movie quotes. So that's just me. That's why Um, I speak with Mark Keller because he, he is definitely the cinephile of us all. (laughs) Yes. Yes, that is, (laughs) that definitely does happen. But um, this has been a lot of fun because again, I'm getting a different perspective on a movie that to me I view as nearly a masterpiece of a film. And it's, it's really always intriguing to me to hear a different type of opinion on it. And then to, for it to be something that, you know, obviously you didn't see 20 years ago or 30 years ago. um, And you're seeing it now and you're seeing it through the lens of today and how didn't quite land. Not quite, uh, not really your thing. And I think that that is one of the things that I like about film 
is that it's going to hit people different because I'm sure somebody else could see this for the first time today and maybe it does hit them differently. But what, you know, what are the factors going into it that are different from yours coming to this for the first time? You know, you, you mentioned this isn't really your style of movie in the first place. So it's already like the movie's got to do something more to kind of pull you in. And I think that in the case of Quentin Tarantino, it just doesn't do that. It doesn't quite grab you and pull you in. And I didn't even think about, but you mentioned it and it's absolutely a hundred percent that opening scene that's going to either draw you in or put you off with them sitting around that diner and the conversation that they're having. And the first thing you hear is about the Madonna thing, which by the way, I thought was hilarious. She met Tarantino like a year or two later and signed a copy of her album for him saying, Quentin, just remember, it's not about Dick. It's about love. <laughs> that is very good of her. But she also liked, she apparently liked like the, uh, the idea of that interpretation, but that it was wrong. And I just think that that's pretty cool. But like, that's the first thing in the movie. So immediately I can understand that the misogyny involved in that. And the fact that these are, they are very unlikable misogynistic men. Now the movie's got an even bigger hurdle to try and draw you in. And now it's, it's just more of this dialogue, talking, talking, talking. And yeah, I can, I can absolutely see how this doesn't land, but I'm glad I am glad that you, you went through and did watch it and you didn't hate it. Did you? No, I mean, there's movies that Joey has definitely made me see that I hate. <laughs> but I wouldn't say I hate this. I just think it's not at all my genre of movie. Fair enough. I mean, that's that's completely valid. Um, I do think that love or hate, there is a craftsmanship to this movie that uh, can be appreciated um, in terms of just like seeing a young filmmaker and you can kind of see this. And even if you don't like necessarily the uh, as like somebody who watches movies, you can be like, Oh yeah, I can see where that, how that guy continued to have a career after this. As opposed yeah, to, movie... you know, um, I was yeah, watching this with my boyfriend and he also was like, man, I'm really surprised that Steve Buscemi had a, a career after this. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, did he ever too. And he was, he was young making this um yeah i know the amount of times that he dropped that n-bomb i mean it's surprising that is something that somehow or another tarantino seemed to get away with because he does it he continues to get away with it seems yeah and and i and there definitely are people that don't like it and and you said it perfectly where he basically offends somebody in every movie um in one way or another but i think I think part of it is that he is portraying characters. That's how that character would talk. And it's not good. It's not something that you want. Um, but it is realistic. And it's unfortunate that's realistic. Yeah. Um, I think you I did think a good job when you said that he's unapologetic. He's unapologetically yes. himself. And... Um, that can kind of go in hand in hand with his dialogue choices is, you know, it may offend us, but the, the truth is, is that these things are spoken. 
Yeah, and and I think too he doesn't glorify it. He doesn't make it like a point of pride. He, I always and and look, this is from my perspective. Uh, so I am completely open to if somebody wants to give me a dissenting opinion and tell me that I'm wrong, I will listen and have that conversation. But I always feel like when he works in dialogue like that, it's meant to make you uncomfortable and it's meant to make you not like the person saying it. And it's also meant to be what they would have said, what that type of person would say. And, you know, maybe he shouldn't do that. I, I am not qualified to say one way or the other, but, and if it's something that does offend you, then, you know, that is a completely valid feeling behind it because it's, it's harsh language, but he is, he has always been unapologetic about it. Um, and he's just like, this is what it is. Uh, and in some ways, I think that that works. Um, so, you know, it's just one of those, it's a part of it. It's like the violence of it. It's the, the fact that you have a character who spends 90% of the movie lying in a puddle of blood. Um, you know, that's not something that's easy to, to watch or, or deal with, or the, the whole torture scene, all of that. It's meant to do something to you um, and get a response out of you. And you may, be intrigued by that or it might put you off and make you walk out of a theater and there's nothing yeah, wrong he with, definitely with kind invokes of either. feelings mm-hmm. yes um and as phil in the chat says he's never portraying it as this is cool isn't it or isn't it cool it's always bad people saying these things and people that okay. you don't like using language that you would never use be, but that that is how these you know terrible people speak um, and it's sadly realistic and I wish that it wasn't, but, um, but it is, it's kind of, it's kind of like a movie that will drop, a um, you know, drop language that, uh, we wouldn't use today, but they said it a lot in the eighties. Um, yeah. and you know, it's just, it's, it's a thing that we evolve and we get better. Um, and so I think the fact that we can notice those things and be upset by them is a sign that we are evolving as a species, hopefully. Yeah. You never know. Um, now, you are part of the So Wizard podcast, uh, and this has been our fourth week. We've had uh, we've had all of you on, which is always so much fun. Um, very different movie for you and I to talk about than the last time. Last time we talked about Better Off Dead, which was about as far away from a Tarantino movie as you can get, really. Yeah, the, this one was... You know, I was I was going through all of the things that I haven't seen, and uh, the, I gave Joey a list, and and he just <laughs> he just kind of took what he thought would would be good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Next time, you and I will hash out the list, and we'll we'll find something. Um, <laughs> well, we'll well Joey can Joey can make his own list for his own movies. Um, <laughs> But I do I know, think I was as surprised some, he's never seen Hook, so. <laughs> I was too, to be honest. Um, because I felt like like everybody saw that movie for a period of time. Like it was just everywhere and it kind of inescapable. So it amazes me the movies that people don't see sometimes. Um because you just think of them as being ubiquitous and uh it's not always the case. Um everybody's kind of got a different background, which is cool. I and mean, what's fun about doing this show? Um as a cinephile. You know, I watch Tarantino movies and I get into those, but if you're not 
that type of a cinephile or your movie choices are just in a different direction, um, you're going to like different movies. And so then that's a conversation that can happen and we can look at different things. So it's like, it's always fun. It's just fun to have these conversations and, and get these different perspectives on stuff. So again, I'm glad that you got to watch this one um, and suffer through it uh, for, for the show. So thank you for that. Always. Luckily it was the <laughs> shortest. It's the shortest of Tarantino films. So um, that's another thing to keep in mind. If you do watch any other Tarantino stuff is it's a lot of the same type of filmmaking, but longer. Oh, yeah. Uh, Maybe this one was a good, a good one. Too. <laughs> this was the good litmus test to be like, Ooh, yeah. can I do Tarantino or not? Cause it's only an hour and 40 minutes long. Um, I think once upon a time in Hollywood is just shy of three hours. So yeah. Yeah. That's um, rough. So just, it's a lot. Um, I, I don't mind a three hour movie, but it's gotta be paced. Well, I feel like Tarantino paces his movies pretty good, but I don't mind dialogue heavy scenes. If dialogue heaviness is not something, then that three hour movie is going to feel like it's a day and a half. So, you know, bear that in mind. If someone says, Hey, you should watch this Tarantino movies, take a look at the runtime and, uh, and decide for yourself. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I might, I might steer you away from some of those is what I'm saying. I might be like, yeah, you know, maybe not unless you have to for a show. Um, but uh, I do think that, that getting to see again, something kind of out of your comfort zone, um or out of your normal uh zone when you do when you do talk movies because this this is the kind of thing where some of what was in this movie can kind of seep into your brain and you can look at another movie with some of this in mind too which can kind of change how you view and how you see movies so that's always a, a fun thing to do especially when you do a podcast uh where you talk about movies a lot which you guys do um so it's very cool. And let people remind people where they can find So Wizard as well. So we're we're on pretty much every single podcasting app you can find. We're on Spotify. We're on uh, I know Apple Podcasts did a thing at one time. Joey's probably laughing hysterically listening to me <laughs> this all out. <laughs> um, but and every single podcasting app, Joey signs us up for Podbean. Um, I think even Google has a podcasting thing. But if you go to sowizardpodcast.com, you can you can find our episodes. You can click on the link and, and listen to it on any app that you actually have. I know everybody has different apps. Absolutely. Excellent. Sowizardpodcast.com is where you can find it. And what I like is that you all have different perspectives. And so you get a good mix of voices talking about these movies too like you said mark is the very much the cinephile um yeah i'm very and... cynical <laughs> <laughs> which honestly you need you need to have because not like all the voices on a show shouldn't be the same that makes yeah. for better conversation um We're very and i also different. know yeah and i and I, I know from talking to joey that you don't do the horror movies so i don't yeah <laughs> I've told him I've told him in the past hey if you ever need another voice uh for it and he's like well Aubrey doesn't do any of the horror movies so when we do one of those I'll, I'll give you a call I'm like cool I'm, I'm down for that um yeah we and went I don't to one and I almost passed out so they, they're like we're never gonna make you go again <laughs> oh now I want to know what one was it I don't even I think it was one of the Halloween movies actually I get so anxious that then I mm. hype myself up and then my heart rate gets going and then I'm like oh no <laughs> and that's you know that's the thing 
yeah and like horror movies are meant to put you on edge and and increase the anxiety so if you're going into it already uh anxious that's not going to get better so <laughs> hey it's good to know your limits right it's good to know what you can and can't watch and and there's nothing there's literally nothing wrong with that so uh i'll i'll jump on those grenades for you in the future if you need i appreciate that <laughs> But, but Aubrey, thank you so much for being here. This was a lot of fun and it was a very good conversation. I hope that you had a good time. I did. Thank you so much. I'm sorry my webcam crapped out halfway. So. <laughs> That's okay. Not, I don't worry about that too much at all. Um, yeah. Definitely, if you, uh, if you liked these past few episodes uh, of this show, check out SoWizardPodcast.com. Download it. Uh, Phil uh, Rude in the chat said that SoWizard had one of the best segments uh, he saw during live stream for The Cure, which... Yeah sweet <laughs> and that was awesome uh i am uh gonna work on being involved in that next year for sure um it's I a lot to, of fun uh, yeah i talked to uh gerald um mm -hmm. from two peas on a podcast uh a lot and uh, he and i were talking about that and i've started getting to know some of the other people involved in it knowing you guys so i definitely love what you do with with live stream for the cure and um i, I want to definitely get involved more in that next year um instead of just being a, a viewer and uh, you know, donator. So, uh, but so wizardpodcast.com is great. Now this show I do, uh, I record it live Sunday nights, 8 PM Eastern time at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. And you can watch it there live. You can see the recording uh, either on Twitch after the fact or over my YouTube channel um, at TV's Travis on YouTube. You can find the, the live or the, the recorded videos of this, podcast wise it's available everywhere um just uh but the easiest way to find it is go to tvstravis.com and there you can find this podcast other shows that i do links to merch uh patreon for this show where you can uh you can back the show for as little as a dollar an episode if you want to um i have tiers on there that get you special discord access as well as a monthly movie night for patrons um, where we go through the back catalog of this show and let you watch movies that you hadn't seen before the i call it the movie catch-up night um, so that's always fun too. Uh, so definitely check that out. TVstravis.com. Um, it's a great website, Bombats, uh, in the chat who, uh, designed that website for me. So, uh, TVstravis.com and SoWizardPodcast.com to find Aubrey, Mark, Joey, and, uh, and all the stuff that they do. And, uh, SoWizard on YouTube as well. Right. Yes. I think that's yeah. Adam does our, our, uh, YouTube channel. Yes. Yep, and having the four of you on has been fun. I'm not going to wait two years to have you back on. By the way, we'll do this yeah, more definitely. often because you guys are Bring great. Bring us back. <laughs> Absolutely, you guys are wonderful. Um, so that has been uh, talking Reservoir Dogs. Aubrey, thank you so much. Thank and, you. And uh, next week, what do I have going on for next week? Because I know I've got a couple pretty fun movies coming up. Uh, let's see. Oh, ah, The Fugitive. I have got somebody who's never seen Harrison Ford in The Fugitive before. And we're going to watch that. So that'll either. be a fun one. <laughs> little little less dialogue heavy, a little more action, but it's a, it's a tense movie. It's kind of a thriller. Um, okay. It's very good, uh, but it is also early 90s. So you got to filter it through that. It's not going to be quite the same as, a, as an action. It's not quite an action movie, but there's things going on in it. And Tommy Lee Jones and Harrison Ford are great in there. Um, I love Tommy Lee Jones, I think, uh, so I probably would like it. Oh, and this was the movie he won his Oscar for. 
you want an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor. Um, it's really good. So uh, definitely check it out. Um, and that's that's going to be next week's movie. So until next week and until The Fugitive, which I get to watch, just remember to enjoy your movies and uh, be excellent to each other. Dick, 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 dick. How many dicks is that? A lot. <laughs> Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>